Good morning. My name is Dee, and I can't tell you how happy we are to be with you, to be together in this place. I know that we have quite a few children that are wrapping up one of the big adventures of this morning, and some of those families will be coming in as we begin this service, so I hope you will make space and make them feel welcome. This morning, we're taking you on a journey, a journey that takes us back to the last few days of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus' earthly ministry. The outline's something like this. Wednesday, there is an incredible party at the home of Lazarus, sisters Mary and Martha. It's a dinner given in Jesus' honor. Thursday, Jesus has another meal with his disciples. It's the last meal he'll have before the crucifixion. That night, he moves into the garden and prays, and that's where the betrayal comes late Thursday night. In the wee hours of the night, in the early morning, a trial happens moves us into Friday where Jesus is turned over to Pilate, the crucifixion, and the burial. And then the long silence of Saturday. And then Sunday. But we're getting ahead of ourselves just now. A little too far down the road, we are beginning with the amazing story that starts in John chapter 12 where we find Jesus in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The people have started gathering at the house. I hope you can put yourself there. And just as more are coming through the door and the house is starting to get crowded, kind of like happening now as people are starting to file in, that's what's what, what was happening Thursday night in Lazarus's home. Jesus, again, the guest of honor. The conversation is going in a number of directions. I have no doubt that they were having at least some conversation about the things that were taking place in the neighborhood, much like we might have here. So we might talk about the women's tea that is coming up, April 25th, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We want to invite you to be a part of it. You can contact Jeannie Holly or contact the church office. They might have had a tea coming up as well, of which they could be a part They might have been discussing the chili cook-off that was two weeks away on a Sunday morning following church, an invitation for you to participate and bring your chili, or they might have had a number of conversations about the fact that they needed more volunteers to help make that thing happen. Conversation like that was taking place, or there might have been kids running around in the Um, gathering there at Lazarus' house, and they might have asked, where are the kids gathering? The kids are always welcome here. But if you would like to take infants to the nursery just out these doors and to the left, or to the children's church service that takes place across the Friendship Building in the Children's Building, uh, Friendship Plaza in the Children's Building, please feel free to do that. Conversations about a uh, baby shower coming up for the Van Bruggens, Kids University taking place, midweek activities. I don't know what the conversation was in Lazarus' house, but I have no doubt that it was about what was happening in the neighborhood at the time. So, 
I'm inviting you into the story this morning. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand up, to pass the peace of God as they would have that evening, to let somebody know how glad you are that they are here, and to welcome them to this journey that we're on together. Please stand and pass the peace of Christ. I invite you to be seated. And to once again acknowledge that we are on a journey this morning together from Wednesday before the crucifixion through Monday and the days that follow. The gathering at Lazarus' house, a great success. In the midst of Roman oppression, This was kind of a light in the midst of that darkness, a gathering where we could just put aside all of the ways in which we feel like we are not fully home, not fully in control or in charge, but gather together and once again celebrate that we are God's children, God's people, God's treasure, that the house of Israel is a foundation stone for God Almighty. So as you listen to this reading out of Psalm 118, place yourself in a setting where you listen to these words and the celebration that might be taking place Wednesday night as all of the friends have gathered together. Hi, good morning. I'm Caitlin Lund. I'll be reading from Psalms today like Deke has said. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says, 
is our cornerstone. Let's stand and sing together. Lazarus, I'm guessing, was seated with the other guests around the table. Jesus there as well as the guest of honor. Martha, in typical Martha style, was busy making the final touches on several of the dishes that were being brought out for the guests, orchestrating those who were helping to serve. But Mary, probably having stolen away from the busyness of the kitchen, might have made her way to her place of rest when no one else was around, where she might have kept a few of her favorite special items, her treasures, if you will. There, amongst a number of other items, my guess is she might have pulled out what was going to become the focus of this evening, a jar a jar of 
the most expensive perfume, pure nard. It was said that this probably cost a year's worth of wages for a laborer, Mary's special treasure. She had it in her mind that she wanted to do something extravagant for Jesus. Jesus, I mean, this is the one who had brought her brother back to life. And the one who had given her new life. What gift could she give? What could she say? Nothing seemed like too much. But I'm sure she thought about this moment. It would be awkward at best to walk out into that room where the party was taking place. Jesus likely still reclined at the table with his feet off to the side, as was the tradition. She looks for the opportune moment, knowing full well that she might be, oh, I don't know, chastised by her brother and sister or if they knew what she was about to do, makes her way to Jesus. My guess is he might have not even seen her coming. She comes up beside him breaks open the jar, pours the perfume over his feet, and began to wipe his feet with her hair. The aroma, the fragrance, begins to fill the room, begins to mingle with all of the other aromas of the food that's been prepared. Wouldn't be long before the aroma went well past the dining room, started to fill up the rest of the house, probably spilled into the courtyard where some of the townspeople likely gathered, as was the custom, hoping that maybe at the end of the meal they might get some of what was left over, assuming that the guests didn't eat everything, they might have a chance to get some of what was left over. Out in the courtyard, the smell, the fragrance, The nard that had filled the room and now was spilling out into the house. Oh, what a fragrance. What is that wonderful smell? The fragrance of Christ. In the hours that passed as Jesus would move through the house or as he left and made his way down the road, certainly that fragrance over him, would follow him wherever he would go. And after he left, the fragrance would linger like a memory holds hope. Oh, that was Wednesday. Thursday, no doubt, that fragrance lingered with Jesus. As preparation was made for the special meal to be shared with his disciples, The disciples had gathered together. Jesus was not the guest of honor in this particular setting. He was in many ways the host of this gathering. There were amazing teaching moments. You can read the scripture passage and hear some of the wonderful things that Jesus used to teach. Near the beginning of the evening, he tucked his robe up into his belt and took a basin and a towel and washed all of their feet. And he said to them, I, your Lord and leader, have now given you an example as I have washed your feet, so wash or be a servant to others. 
He talked to them about the circumstances that were yet to come. He made reference to Peter's denial. He talked about um, the things that were close to his heart and the things for which he wished to pray. They asked him questions but were a bit confused. He promises the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will come and be their counselor. He encourages them to not be troubled by what he says, but to be hopeful. And yet his words throw them off. It's quite the contrast. Wednesday night seems so festive. Thursday seemed far more reflective. Thursday seemed like a party. Wednesday seemed like a party. Thursday seemed like preparation. Wednesday seemed extravagant. Thursday just felt a bit foreboding. While with them at the table, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said a strange statement. He said, this is my body broken for you. An invitation to the disciples to participate in something that has been carried by Christ followers for centuries. He took the cup as well. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. He offered it to all of them. And this morning... We're invited to that same table, invited into the storyline, invited to be here this morning, but to be there as well Thursday night with Jesus as a follower.
took the bread, he broke it, gave thanks. Christ's body given for you, we do this in remembrance of our Lord. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, poured out for you. We do this in remembrance of our Lord.
prayed for his followers. He prayed for the world. He then led them out to a garden area. It was dark. It was late. He continued in prayer. But the disciples, they fell asleep. After some time passed, Judas the betrayer came. Came with a crowd, a crowd with clubs and swords, a mob. They took Jesus. They arrested him. Took him to the Sanhedrin, which was a group of religious leaders. Jesus was put on trial Friday night. A trial in the middle of the night? These late hours? Well, it's kind of a mock trial. They brought forth their charges. And they decided that they were going to turn Jesus over to Pilate. So, early, early in the morning of Friday, Jesus is taken to Pilate. Pilate had the power of life and death over Jesus. I just wonder in those moments if Pilate, when Jesus was brought into the courts, thought, this is that fragrance in my courts. I get the worst of the worst. Where is that perfume coming from? He questioned Jesus, asked if he really was king of the Jews. In the midst of this moment, Pilate was somewhat indecisive, but the crowd called for Jesus' crucifixion, and Pilate complied. They led Jesus to the place of the skull where he was nailed to a cross hung between two thieves who were also crucified there with him. Those in those moments heard the many insults that were thrown Jesus' way. What a contrast to the party at Lazarus' house such a hopeful night only 36 hours before. Now, our hope, our guest of honor, our leader, crucified. So I invite you to hear the words of Mark chapter 15 as this story that we're now in begins to unfold. Rosa, reading from the Gospel of Mark. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, 
Lema Shabbatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Darkness has fallen this Friday day. The sun hasn't set, but the darkness has certainly settled in. This is not what we anticipated. I'm not sure what the disciples did. Some of them just hid in fear. Others peeking around corners. Some made their way to the cross. My guess is many tried to pray, but it's hard to pray at moments like this. Nevertheless, the invitation is in our darkest moments, come to God. So in a moment, I invite you to join me in prayer. Following that, we'll have a period of silence as we experience what might have been felt in that long, silent Saturday 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, oh God, our Lord, the darkness is not just the eclipse of the sun, it's the darkness that just is all around, and not only all around, but the darkness that seems to invade us from the inside out. It is as if the whole world has sunk into a deep depression. Lord, you have drawn us into this storyline. It doesn't take much to feel what the disciples might have felt because today, this week, there are moments when you feel so distant, so removed, so silent. We offer up to, our, to you our prayers and do so today. But at times we wonder, does it do any good? Is there any hope? The way we would have answered our prayers has long since passed. <laughs> Yet here we are. 
at times confused, often frightened, occasionally hurt. Not just the hurts that leave a bruise, but the kind of hurts that leave internal scars. It is as if they come crashing back in moments like this, as if somebody has put some type of amplifier or megaphone in those distant memories and they come screaming back. And so, Lord, we, like the disciples on that Saturday so many years ago, sit in silence before you. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They, They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani. Let's stand as we proclaim the resurrection together in song.
seated. So over the centuries, this triumphant Sunday morning has been marked 
by one person saying he is risen, and the response is, he is risen indeed. And so we celebrate that truth this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And one more time, he, our Lord, is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the proclamation of this Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And Paul's excitement, but also the challenge for what he has faced in that church to proclaim once again this amazing truth, this story that has become the disciples' story. And so as you hear the reading of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11, my hope is that you might find yourself still in this storyline of what might take place in the Mondays that follow the incredible resurrection moment. Following the reading of scripture, the ushers will come, the brass will play an offertory, and then I'll offer some thoughts as to where I think this story goes from here. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time, I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Thank you. 
So we have traveled from Wednesday to Thursday to Friday, the long silence of Saturday, the resurrection on Sunday morning. And now, the story continues. Years have passed. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Some questions have been raised, and Paul attempts to correct some of the things in his letter to the church at Corinth. But he comes to that which is of most importance, the highest priority, he says. And let me tell you what that is. I want to remind you of the gospel that I have preached to you that you have received and on which you took your stand. It is the gospel that has saved you if you will hold firmly to the word that has been preached to you. Otherwise, your believing will be in vain. For as we just heard, he says that I have proclaimed to you that which was passed on to me, and it is this, Jesus died for our sins, according to scripture. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scripture. It is this proclamation of our story as Christ followers It is the creed that unites believers. I spoke last week about some of the creedal statements in Scripture and made reference to the Apostles' Creed that many of us have heard on many occasions. It is an attempt to summarize those things around which we gather as truths in our journey. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge both the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church Universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Paul is proclaiming the creed of the follower that Jesus died for us and was raised again. But Paul doesn't say it's just a creed. Paul has experienced the relationship with Christ. Post-resurrection, he says, Jesus appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve. He then appeared to over 500 people, some of whom are still alive, Paul writes, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And then Paul says, finally, to me, I'm not really worthy to be called an apostle. I'm the least of all of them. But by God's grace, I am who I am. Paul is saying, I have been drawn into this storyline where in so many ways, God's story has become my story. God's fragrance I hope my fragrance, the good news, my good news to share. 
I think for me, part of what makes this story believable, because it's a pretty unbelievable story, people don't just rise from the dead. Tombs aren't a place where resurrection takes place. A stone isn't pushed aside by an angel. This is a strange story. We've come to celebrate it, but let's admit it. It is a bit bizarre. What in part makes it so believable is the unbelief of the early followers. Mary didn't go to the tomb to witness the resurrection. She took spices to put them on a corpse. When she found Jesus' body wasn't there, her first thought and the others was not, he's risen from the dead. It was instead, where have you taken the body that I might care for it? When she goes back to tell some of the disciples, John and Peter in particular, and the other who's, listen, their response is, this is crazy talk from a woman who it seems has gone nuts. But Peter and John decide to race to the tomb to see what she's talking about. The other disciples are not swept up in this this wave of belief. They instead go to a room and hide in fear. It is as if they are panicked, not praising. We sang some gorgeous, wonderful songs. They were shaking too much to sing too many songs in those early hours because the story was not what they anticipated. It is as if their unbelief makes this believable. And the scripture doesn't hide that at all. The other piece that makes this story believable to me is that in the face of all that they were to address, they held tenaciously to their story. And there really was no good reason to hold to the story. We're not persecuted so much for holding to that story in our culture. But for those individuals, you can read about it in Acts. It was not well received. The disciples were, a couple of them imprisoned early on, we find in chapter 4 of Acts. They were instructed to not say anything more about this story they had concocted. And they said, how can we not tell what Jesus has done for us? Chapter 7, Stephen shares the good news and proclaims it. And what results is? Stoned to death. The response to this good news is not necessarily a pouring out of good news to them. Chapter 8, we find general persecution toward all of those who proclaim this storyline. And then we get into some of the stories of Paul and Barnabas as they go and proclaim what is already beginning to spread like wildfire, and they begin to organize people together 
to share this amazing storyline, but what happens? They are beaten. They're imprisoned. They're flogged. They're stoned. Herod puts Peter in prison, kills James. The list goes on and on. For me, part of what makes this so believable is that in the face of that kind of persecution, with no reason to hold to a story that's false, they hold on to it so tenaciously. And Paul writes to the church and says, we have eyewitnesses that saw Jesus. We saw him after the crucifixion. He was dead, but is the firstborn among those who live. It is the story that has held us steady. We are invited into this storyline. You're welcome to ask questions. You're encouraged to raise your doubts. God doesn't recoil when we respond to God that way. It is, as Paul says, an invitation not simply to a creed, but to a relationship. As Jesus revealed God to Paul, so God invites us to open up our hearts that God might reveal God's self to you and to me. What a great morning for that to happen. In the midst of any doubts or questions you might have, could this be the morning where you say, okay, God, I've heard all the creedal statements. I know the story. I've struggled with this, but this morning, would you show yourself to me? Having invited you into this storyline, could it be that this day the story continues in your heart, in your life? We are all then called to be part of the Good News Network. The 500 witnesses, the apostles, the disciples, Paul himself shared this good news. It's good news that breaks down chains, that opens prisons' doors. It's good news that brings about freedom. It is forgiveness from the way we've been. It is a challenge to be all we were created to be by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It is a beckoning cry that you might first experience that relationship and then simply live it out. Becoming part of this good news network, this chapter is written by you. It begins with the proclamation, he is risen. <laughs> he is risen. Praise God, our Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. I invite the choir to come to pronounce a choral benediction and then allow me to pronounce a blessing over you. Shout hallelujah to the risen man. Shout and give blessing to the great I am. Shout hallelujah, rejoice and sing. Hallelujah to the risen King. 
Will you stand with me? I pray for some of you that this is a morning that marks new beginning, that marks resurrection life for you, that this is a morning that will mark your journey with God's grace, God's love, God's renewal and restoration, the power of the resurrection in you so that you might be part of that good news network. Go in God's grace, God's peace, and God's love. God be with you.